Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Greetings, Hackaroos. I am here. We're back. It is a turbulent time in our nation and our world. We have very grim news from the conflict in Ukraine. We have high-stakes politics here at home with a Supreme Court nomination and many other things afoot. Plenty to talk about in this midterm election year. I'm here with my uh, partner in bloviating, the one and only Robert Gibbs, who's going to introduce our terrific guest, a friend of the show. And I'll give you a little hint going in. Big political career, which Robert will explain, but I would say he has the most honorable of professions now. He's a bookseller. First of all, I'm going to push back on that whole bloviator thing, but we'll do that in the second hour. <laughs> well, you're doing it with um, bloviating later. It'll be a yeah, fair exactly, fight. Exactly. But we have with us, Murphy, one of our favorite guests, mm -hmm. longtime congressman, Steve Israel, two thankless cycles at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. So a lot of knowledge to tap there. Currently the director of the Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell University. And as you mentioned, he's a small businessman. He's an independent bookseller, uh, the owner of Theodore's Books in Oyster Bay, New York. Congressman, welcome back uh, to the show. How's business? Also, I'm a bloviator. <laughs> I can add that to my resume. Right, oh man, three bloviators, battle. one show. Can Can America handle it? We're gonna We're gonna test the limits here today. How's but the yeah, how's the bookstore going? Let's get an update on that first. Then we're diving into the grim business. I went from from Capitol Hill, flying on Air Force One, to literally dusting shelves at a bookstore and sweeping out the stock room, and I love it. <laughs> it uh, it's a lot of fun. I get to. Uh, although I must say, uh, I've become, you know, I may have a different perspective on things like regulations of small businesses <laughs> and taxes and sign permits. <laughs> it, it has given me, a, you know, no, I'm, I, I still believe in those things, but I uh, experience it from the other end. And I love it. We sell, we're located in Oyster Bay where Theodore Roosevelt lived and worked and died. His summer executive offices when he was president are literally across the street from my shop and and we sell history and current events and biography and wow. bestsellers and kids books and everything else next time i'm in the area you can bet i'll be there and and i've got to do a just a very quick uh, story about changed circumstance in 95 i was chief consultant on lamar alexander's long shot presidential race and we we finally don't make it after giving them a hell of a fight and i'm packed up my apartment in nashville and i'm driving back and i hear on the radio as i'm going through knoxville that they just finished an event with you know the nominee or presumptive nominee bob dole and lamar i thought oh, i'll drop by and say hi to lamar and hi to senator dole who i'd worked for in 88 so i go and i'm wearing like cargo shorts and a t-shirt i go wheeling into the parking lot at the you know ramada go up it's after the event and they're up at the suite i get off the door and i go you know, jogging down the hall, I see Dole and Lamar through the open door at the other end. Hey, Senator, Senator, and slam. Uh, Secret Service guy kind of grabs and pushes me up against the wall, not knowing who I was. I had no credential. And Howard Baker was standing there, and he kind of looked at me. Well, Mike, you've gone from being the windshield to being the bug. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It sounds like a pretty good bug's life to me, and I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out Theodore's. Well, I don't, I don't have a good tradition from the joy of books and reading to the headlines, pictures, and just heartbreaking images coming out of the conflict in Ukraine as the Russian forces pull back. 
and we we see some of the atrocities that have been committed uh, in the suburban cities that they occupied when they were trying to seize uh, uh, the capital. Uh, I always say Kiev because I suffered through a lot of Russian classes, but that's not it's the old Russian colonial way. Um, Kiev, Kiev, the Ukrainian right. capital. So. This ramps it up for Biden a bit. I mean, we're political hacks. We kind of got to go there. The world is outraged, never more unified. But how do you see it unfolding? And we'll start with Steve and Robert. Um, And Biden's going to be under, I think, legitimate pressure to squeeze even harder and, uh, you know, in a controlled way, escalate a little bit against Putin, who's clearly wildly out of control now, without, in my view, any doubt, a war criminal. Yeah, I agree with you that he, that he is a war criminal, and uh, you know, there um, the ICC uh, and the several world leaders are are continuing to ramp up uh, potential uh, prosecutions on the domestic political side. Here's what fascinates me: there hasn't been much of a bump for the president, mm-hmm. uh, despite what I think most people would would agree has been some deft handling of this crisis. I mean, so easy to miscalculate our way into World War Three, um, but his use of the fusion of diplomacy and intelligence uh, was critical. Uh, Putin never expected to be in the situation he's in. Uh, he's not winning this war. Uh, he's not losing it, but he's not winning it. And yet um, the Biden administration continues to hover in the most recent polling. I've seen it about 40% favorability. Presidents, as you guys know, generally get bumps uh, mm-hmm. on things like this. There has been no bump, which makes me believe that, uh, you know, we are just locked into a 40, 40, 20 country. 40% of the American people love Joe Biden, no matter what. 40% loathe him, no matter what. And it's the 20% that's left who will determine where the country goes politically and in the midterm elections. Yeah, I don't, I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, it has been a little surprising not to see any of the rally around the flag. I do think it, part of it is there's a disconnect, I think, a bit between everyday lives of Americans and uh, Ukraine and Russia a long way away. Um, I, I I think if you've seen anything and, and, you know, heading into the State of the Union and the real bulk of what we were seeing in Ukraine, his numbers, approval numbers in Ukraine and dealing with Russia were in the low 30s. So I think there's been a little change in that. But to your point, Congressman, he's uh, – not just not seeing a rallying around the flag, there there isn't a bump. And the unfortunate thing for him is that twenty percent that you talked about that's malleable in this electorate is uh, is anxious and grumpy, uh, exactly. and it's it's yeah. it's not in a good place. We'll get more to that. I think the the challenge for him politically, really, Murphy, and you touched on it is. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to do even more. And they've done a lot and they've done it really well. But, and we wrote about this in our newsletter this morning at hacksontap.bulletin.com. I don't think you can, I don't think you can play this anymore to a stalemate and hope to negotiate uh, with Putin because I don't think you can sit across the table from a butcher like that. Yeah, that that is a key point. It the negotiation strategy is harder post all these atrocities because you know the so-called gaff Biden had earlier, where this guy's got to go, turns out to be 
pretty much right on target, as you know, some of us thought at the time. And I, I, I think they've got a, you know, I don't want to sound cynical about this, but on the domestic Whoa, don't politics, sound cynical. Yeah, no, that no, would really throw our listeners for a loop. Yeah, right? our, our microphones will all explode. We the show can't take it. No, no, but and and, and I. I'm sympathetic to Biden here because what Biden has done well is all the the vast canvas of foreign policy stuff, uniting NATO like they'd never been united in face of the crisis, pushing sanctions to the 9.5 on the chart. You know, it's all been very adroit, but it's complicated. It's soft power stuff, and it it doesn't play like the third act in a in a big war movie. So what I think they need to do a little more of is respect the reality of the modern communications era. And, and increase the simple narrative of what we're doing. I would find a ready for Hollywood colonel or general to start doing briefings. I would talk, I would build up the hardware. This is the new Z500. You know, it, it looks like a coconut. It'll actually take out three tanks. We shipped a hundred of them over the border yesterday and little stuff like that. That's optically strong. So people can kind of understand the concrete, simple, Every day on the battlefield thing, because, you know, this the Ukrainians have been a superpower at using social media. Uh, I, you know, I'm seeing tractors pulling $3 million crash Russian helicopters through fields. And uh, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, uh, just things on Twitter and other social media channels that are very powerful. Um, the White House has to get into that business. Uh, with little stuff that's catchy on social media to show concrete things. Because right now in our tribalized politics, where I'm right, you're evil is the rule for both parties, saying, well, we broke seven, you know, 17 years of German rearmament with a new geopolitical framework, uh, it, it doesn't have the same click. I mean, the MiGs, there are a lot of technical problems about NATO radios and candles. I, I would have shipped four over the border just even if they don't work. Just for the optical victory to show action people understand. And I think they are going to up the armaments. They're talking about former Russian tanks and things that NATO members who used to be in the Warsaw Pact have stacked up in warehouses. And win the optics of the hardware war in the short term. Uh, It'll make Biden look stronger. Yeah, I think, and I think they've, you know, the tanks is something they've, as you said, they've talked about. The irony, you know, of, of using the former Soviet weaponry against the Soviets, uh, probably not lost on anybody, particularly Vladimir Putin. Uh, but I do think, it, you know, the, the real, I think, shooting match here uh, is going to be what does Europe do? Uh, again, I think the lifeline that Putin enjoys right now is is energy exports. Yeah, it's his best weapon and it pays for his army. It is addictive for Europeans to get rid of. Now, maybe Maybe there's some change in that, but I, I think unless or until that lifeline is unplugged, it, it's he's going to have at least one escape route. You're, you're exactly right. Um, the tricky part of, uh, on this is keeping NATO united. Uh, Putin's strategy was he really believed that he could divide and weaken NATO. Uh, what he actually did is united and strengthened yeah. NATO. Uh, but in order to keep NATO united, uh, we're going to have to address that uh, th- that energy issue. So Lithuania just recently said that, you know, they would consider uh, banning Russian energy sources. Um, the more of that kind of courage that European leaders and Europe and, and, and European consumers can show, uh, the more difficult it is for Putin. 
at, at the end of the day, you know, this very much reminds me uh, of 1979 when the Soviets went into Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, and they thought it was going to be easy. They thought they'd be in and out. Uh, and they were there for 10 years and it became a brutal uh, and ruinous ground war for them uh, from which they had to retreat. And they retreated a much different country uh, than they were when they went in. I, I see this as as being uh, very as, as playing up very similar to that. I don't see Putin going anywhere quickly. Uh, I, I, I think this becomes a war of attrition mm-hmm. uh, that continues to grind down Ukraine and grind down Russia and presents all sorts of problems for Ameri- in American domestic politics and American foreign policy going forward. I think Putin's having Afghanistan flashbacks, too. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the Afghan flag should be, you thought it would be easy, and they could send one to the British, to the Russians, to us. Yeah. But back to the energy weapon, because you're totally right. The Russians even call it the energy weapon, threatening during the winter to cut off natural gas to European countries, particularly Germany, that are really vulnerable to that. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break, and now a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Murphy, people don't always realize that physical symptoms like a headache or teeth grinding or even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling on Twitter, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating or overeating. Yeah, you know, look, we're both in stressful businesses. I mean, we have to deal with Axelrod, let alone all the other problems in life. So I find myself having bad sleep, and bad sleep will kill you. It it screws up the next day. Nothing, nothing is worse. It actually has a physical impact. And so relieving stress is so important, which is why better help is so important. Better help is customized online therapy that offers video telephone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And after I haven't had any sleep for a day or two, I don't want to see anybody on camera. It's also much more affordable than in-person therapy. So give it a try and see if online therapy can help you. Yeah, stress shows up in all kinds of ways. And in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if it can help. Yeah, if you want to reduce stress, it is a way to go. And our listeners, Hacks on Tap listeners, get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Hacks. That's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash hacks. 10% off offer for our loyal listeners. Check it out. Fight that stress. So let's go to the politics again. Let's pretend we're all in the White House political office. And so, okay, the boss just made a decision. He's got to deal with the Germans. They're going to dramatically cut back even farther on Russian gas. We're going to bankrupt this SOB. So here's the problem. We got to fill the gas supply, which means we got to crash build two LNG terminals in 18 months which the engineering people say can do. But how do we get through all the regulatory? How do we deal with the environmental wing of our party that's not going to love and embrace of more fracking and more uh, fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera? You know, the domestic policy uh, side of this would not be easy to do. What, what would we tell them? What, uh, d- Steve, you've, you've been in the House. Do you think you could, on the Putin angle, get kind of a temporary 
you know, master coalition to, yeah, let's do what it takes to save Europe from freezing if they stand up to Russian energy? You mean within Congress? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, actually, those conversations are happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I had lunch with uh, the, the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Sean Patrick Maloney, uh, just uh, a week ago. Uh, in DC and we were going through the maps. He's amazing, by the way. Uh, he's just robotic and, and looking at a district and just spitting out all the data you need. And I said to him, so what are the, what keeps you up at night? And he said, the two G's gas and groceries, Yeah, the price of gas and the price of groceries and talked about, uh, the conversations that are, are being had with the white house on what needs to be done to address those issues. If gas prices in October are where they are now, and if grocery prices in October are where they are now, that translates into a much larger loss of seats for Democrats. And so there are lots of things that can be done. There are conversations about reducing, suspending, or bringing down the federal, uh, excise tax on gas. Uh, there are conversations. In fact, uh, uh, the president just announced the, the release uh, of inventory from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. But I look for, over the next couple of months, look for a concerted action uh, in uh, among Democrats in the House and Senate uh, with respect to two things. Uh, putting some kind of hold on federal uh, taxes on gas and oil and some kind of windfall profits mechanism. Those are the two things that House Democrats are looking at. They've got to be able to point to something if the the um, if the situation lingers into fall. And as far as uh, you know, ramping up natural gas production and, and ramming through a couple of export terminals uh, to be able to supply Europe because we've got the gas. The problem is how do you get it to Europe on both sides? You know, shortage of terminals and all that. And there's always been big environmental opposition to building more LNG terminals and NIMBY stuff and all that. But if we want them in less than three years, it's going to take a huge federal push and a consensus in the Congress. Um, and I'm wondering if the Putin rallying cry will be enough to get it done. I hope so. Because we've got to back up the Europeans to let them be that brave. Or, you know, they're not going to be able to heat houses this winter. Biden just went over to Europe, to Brussels, to to Poland, and talked about that, Murphy. He talked about increasing uh, the delivery, uh, of LNG. Uh, I mean, look, unless there's a pathway off of Russian energy and onto some other type of energy, uh, there's no other way to do it. And yes, I think there will be some bumps in the road in terms of, uh, the progress that has to get made on climate change. Um, but I, I think the, the administration has very little choice, I think in the short term, uh, they, they're an increase in supply almost has to happen uh, in order to help the Germans, but also to what the congressman said, help the family down the street that's trying to put gas in the car. Uh, and, you know, and, and by the way, groceries get more expensive when you move them in a truck. Uh, so I think there's there's a lot that has to uh to get done. And there has to be a, a lot that's coordinated. I, I, I got to think that this is at the top of the to-do list for the administration. Yeah. And you're right about gas and groceries on domestic politics. Uh, you know, I, I drove by here in Los Angeles. I saw a $6.70 a gallon sign outside a gas station here. And, you know, we have a huge gas tax in California. I, I've generally been a supporter of the gas tax because it motivates people to get more fuel efficient vehicles. I like that better than subsidies to buy a car the government picks. But um, what about groceries? 
Are there any policy bottlenecks there? I don't know the food supply chain very well. Maybe we're political hacks. We we know groceries and stuff you buy and eat, but uh, you're right. People are sensitive. The biggest challenge there isn't the cost of the movement of those goods, but the breadbasket of the world, the breadbasket of Europe is Ukraine. Right. I mean, right. you're, you're the 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 loss of uh, of wheat and other products um, is is going to send a shockwave through. Uh, the global food supply in a way that we probably haven't seen in quite some time. So I think there's going to continue to be a lot of challenge. And, you know, Congressman, to your point, maybe what what ultimately gets people to focus on what's happening there isn't that they're following that. It's that they get led there because uh, in filling up their car on the way to the grocery store, it becomes all too readily apparent. Just saw a poll that our friends at Harvard released last week that uh, you know ninety percent of voters are say that they're fully aware of what's happening in Ukraine, uh, but a significant majority of them don't yet uh, see the impact it's having on their everyday lives. Mm. The more they connect Ukraine with the price of groceries, the price of bread and wheat, uh, the price of gas, um, uh, the the more tolerant they may be. Uh, of of these increases, if they believe that there is kind of this global imperative to stop Putin, it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. The thing I wanted to say is, you know, now I have to revert to my old, you know, being a bookstore owner. I just read an amazing <laughs> book called uh, "The Splendid and the Vile" by Eric Larson. This is great. Mm-hmm. I've not read it yet, but I've heard about yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, and I I interviewed him uh, just uh, two weeks ago, and it's about the one year, uh, uh, the the first year of Churchill's presidency during the the bombing of London, the German bombing of London. And the more, as you're reading this, you realize Zelensky may be the Churchill of our times. And he may be the most important ally that President Biden has in explaining the stakes to the American people. When Churchill gave these extraordinary speeches to the House of Commons, he was talking to the American people because he knew that Britain was, didn't have a chance without American support. And I believe that Zelensky is doing that now. And if he can somehow continue to permeate uh, the American electorate, uh, America's tolerance for some sacrifices may actually increase. And that's where Biden's political interest is, too. If he can create a national purpose on this, he might be able to take the thorn out of the toe. To the D-trip and the midterms. So the Republicans are kind of in the what must be very irritating uh, situation for Democrats where they don't have to do anything and they're going to win. Uh, what, what about a counterattack? What, what's the talk over at the D trip about? We clearly have these pain points, but yeah. what do we do to change the topic from you you want to punish the president to, well, wait a minute, take a look at these bozos over there. Uh, is, is it issue wedges are going to try to move? Is it, uh, generic attacks? Is it Trump? What, uh, what, what do you think the thinking is on how to change the frame here? Cause the frame they've got is a losing one, I think. Basically, tell us all about the lunch you had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, what did he order? What are the districts? Well, I'll tell you, actually, it was a little peculiar. I don't mind telling you because when I said we had lunch, the chairman had lunch. I, I shared some French fries with them. So. There you go. All right. <laughs> That's the chairman who's watching the budget. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, back to the, from the windshield to the bug. Yes. <laughs> I dipped into his fries uninvited. Look, I, I think that he has and the, the Democrats in Congress have a very realistic assessment of their prospects based on history. 
And yeah. so, you know, you, you all know that there are three things that you look at when assessing prospects in a midterm election, presidential favorability, swing voter propensity, and base intensity. Right now, the president in most polls, he's about 40%. Well, that's exactly where George Bush was in, in 2006 when you had a, a mess of swing uh, and a change in the majority. Uh, that's where President Obama was in 2010 when the Democrats lost 63 seats. It's where President Obama was again in 2014 when the Democrats lost 12. It's where a little bit better than where Donald Trump was in 18 when the Democrats uh, took the majority. And so if this is, if the president's still at 40% in uh, September, October, it's looking like those preceding elections in terms of swing voter propensity right now in the mid thirties, that's exactly where yeah. swing voters were in those elections that I mentioned. And base intensity right now is, uh, is not where it needs to be. Bottom line, a lot of this is out of the control of Sean Patrick Maloney and the DCCC. Yeah. We're past the days when a, the DCCC can outflank or outmaneuver a president. We're past those days. It's all about a referendum on the president. If President Biden can somehow get his numbers closer to 50, the Democrats will be able to limit their losses. And who knows, maybe hang on. But if we are stuck in September, uh, where we are now, then you're looking at somewhere between a 2006 and 2018 midterm election environment where they're going to suffer a, a significant loss of seats. Because they're so realistic and because they're bracing uh, their candidates and they are out raising Republicans in terms of money, way ahead. Their frontliners are way ahead of Republicans. Um, I think they've built a plan to withstand a tough environment. Yeah, which, as you say, is the, the one thing they can control building the mm -hmm. forts because Biden drives the big numbers. Well, what should Biden be doing on domestic policy? I guess connecting the pain at the cash register and the gas pump to the Ukraine. Uh, I think they, for whatever reason, got very diluted with build back better uh, and never broke any message through what's in it for you versus do nothing Republicans. But what in the sprint that's coming, what uh, What's your advice? And, and Robert is the architect of all those midterm disasters for Obama. I want to I want to hear yours, too. Right. I was just there in 2010. I, I was a casual observer in 2014. But right, to right. maybe put a finer point on on Mike's question, Congressman, because we talk about this all the time. What fight do Democrats need to pick to 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 shift that lens into an election where it's less of a referendum on Biden, which historically is very, very difficult to do. But how do they set up a contrast between two competing visions? Because to Murphy's point right now, Republicans don't even have to dribble the ball. They don't have to take it even past half court. They just need to let the clock run down seven months, essentially, from today. Uh, you've seen glimmers of it, at least. Uh, let's reduce the price of insulin, right? I mean, that's a great, you guys yeah. know, great issue. Uh, it, it resonates and what a 30 second ad that is for Republicans who voted against reducing the price of insulin. Uh, I think you're going to see much more of that. I think, look, the Democrats need to seize back the narrative. The president is, he is the bully pulpit. Uh, he dictates the narrative, Democrats running for Congress and running for reelection in Congress. They are amplifiers. They echo that narrative. So I think you're, they, they understand they need to do more in those two G's that Chairman Maloney talked about, gas and groceries. Lean into that, be proactive, not go on defense, find ways to reduce those costs, find other kitchen table issues. 
I guess it all comes down to this, and I'm just evangelical on this. Like I, I when I chair DTRIP, um, and when we take a look at our prospects, and it holds even more today, forty percent of the midterm election uh, electorate, they're voting for somebody who will support President Biden's agenda. Yeah, forty percent will vote against anybody who will fight Joe Biden. Uh, you know, even if it's a, a, a can of Diet Coke. We'll vote for, yeah, a box of hammers if they're, yeah. Right, yeah. right. It's that 20%, that 20% of swing voters. Number one, those voters tend to activate in September. They're not caught up in these issues right now. I mean, they talk about it at their dinner tables, gas and groceries, but they're not looking at maps. They're not worrying about gerrymandering. They tend to activate in September. Number two, those voters make their decisions based on their pocketbooks. They talk about jobs. They talk about careers. They talk about their kids' education, taxes, a condition of roads. If the Democrats can propel a narrative that resonates with those 20% of voters, I think they're going to be in good shape. All right. We're going to leave for a minute to pay the power bill, and then we'll be right back. So, dear listeners, Gibbs and I are quietly doing this ad because David Axelrod is deep asleep. It takes two crowbars and a siren to get him off his Helix mattress. One of these things fell off the truck when Helix became a Hacks on Tap sponsor. And we kid you not, Axe loves his Helix sleep mattress. He says he's never gotten better sleep. It's crazy how much he loves this thing. It's probably unnatural how much he loves this thing. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody's unique, and Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. Soft, medium, and firm mattresses, mattresses that are great for cooling you down if you sleep hot, mattresses that are great for spinal alignment. You can't go wrong. Helix is great. Axe told us all about it. He took the online test, no mean feat for Mr. Technology, and he filled it all in and it asked him questions about, do you want soft, medium, firm? Do you sleep on your side, back, stomach, or in his case, lean a little to the left? He got all the information in the, in the three-minute quiz. They sent him a mattress, and believe me, it's been love ever since. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and that mattress comes right to your door shipped by free. And then you have the fun. He told us about that. You open the box, which isn't huge, and the thing comes out. It comes to life and expands out, and bingo, you're ready to go, and you're ready to sleep. Don't take our word for it. Helix is awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as the go-to solution for improving sleep. Trust me, Axe needed a good night's sleep, and we're both glad he found Helix. And being a crafty consumer, he was all about their 10-year warranty. Get this. You get to try it out, not for 50, not for 75, not for 99, but for a hundred nights risk-free. If you don't like it, those hundred nights after you've tried it for a long time and get to know your Helix mattress, they will even pick it up for free if you don't love it. But you will. Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. And Murphy, you know what's even better than 100 free nights of trying it out? What? How about $200 off all mattresses? Wow. Because Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com 
slash hacks. That's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash hacks. Over 12,000 positive reviews from happy customers. Check it out. What races are you watching in particular that you think are a bit of bellwethers of, of what we're going to see? Obviously, too, we're, we're right in the beginning of the primary season, right? So we've got yeah. a host of states over the course of the next sort of five to seven weeks, Ohio, runoffs in Texas, which will be interesting for Democrats, uh, but races in Pennsylvania and other places Again, this just sets the the stage for who's in the general election. But in, any places that you're watching in particular? Well, the first thing that really fascinates me is that the Republican narrative and the narrative of so many pundits, not you guys, but others, that the Democrats were going to start with a major disadvantage because Republicans controlled gerrymandering mm. was all wrong, was all wrong. I was listening to some pundits, again, present company accepted, <laughs> uh, who were saying that the Democrats were going to lo- lose 15 to 30 seats because of redistricting. Guess what? The Republicans are down a net five because of cherry, because of uh, redistricting. So, you know, Democrats are actually, uh, have done, uh, have done very well in that. Um, I am looking at districts in, and there are coinciding Senate races in these districts. So I always look at house races that coincide with Senate races. So I'm looking at those toss up states. You just mentioned them, Gibbs, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, uh, Arizona, uh, Georgia, Nevada, uh, and, uh, Ohio districts. Um, so, you know, those, those I think are kind of the sweet spots. I'm also interested in what's going to happen in places like Orange County, uh, where, you know, which went for the Democrats in 2018, kind of leveled back for Republicans in 2020. I want to see what's happening in, uh, in 2022. Most of the, most of the house has already been sorted out because of gerrymandering and there are fewer seats in play than there have been in the past. That's actually kind of a weird Democratic advantage in a bad year, because in the old days, these kind of presidential numbers could really swing hard against you and lose a lot of seats. But there are so many fewer swing seats than there used to be that there's kind of a shallow bottom. You know, it's harder to lose 40 seats now because they just there aren't as many seats in play. So instead of losing 50 seats in the disaster, you lose 14. Uh, right. which is not great news, but as disasters go, it's a lot better. Um, and I agree on the Senate races. That, to me, is the huge question. In the Senate races where people have a little more of their own brand, will some of – I mean, if this was not a Biden 40% situation, the Dems would be in fighting shape in a bunch of these Senate races, particularly depending on some primaries because we've got some kooks running on the Republican side. And then it becomes more about the kook. The problem is, does the Biden, you know, if we're at 41 percent, you know, rolling into October, does the Biden thing just sweep everybody? And you're going to have some fascinating Republican freshman senators. Um, and uh, too early to tell. But if the Biden numbers don't improve, I'm kind of with Steve. It it becomes a huge force that's hard to fight at every level. To pick up on what you guys were saying, obviously, one of the reasons why Democrats lost so many seats numerically in 2010, uh, to your point, was we had good cycles in 2006 and in 2008 and probably occupied some political territory that we shouldn't have. Uh, and so that some of that 
not so great territory flipped pretty easily. I also think it will be interesting to watch to your point, Congressman Democrats actually, you know, win the presidency in 2020, but lose seats in the house. Uh, not something you see a lot. Um, and so you wonder if did some of that marginal territory get picked back up after 2018 that then, uh, that hold down some of those losses. You've been in these conversations, Congressman, and we see this. If you take a, a, a polling shift of, say, Biden at 51, 52 percent to Biden at 41, 42 percent, you got about a 10 point swing. Right. What level are you looking at or having those conversations as the chair of the DCCC? And you're telling what level of member they're in the fight for their life. Obviously, if you're in a 50-50 district, you already know that. But, yeah. you know, what are you telling somebody who got 57 or 58% in the last election and might be getting used to, hey, I got this? So uh, it's a great question. Um, and and I can talk about specifics so that I don't, I, I, uh, don't want to be unfair and go into extraordinary detail. We'll uh, change my, their names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't want you banned from French fries at the next lunch. So we gotta, <laughs> we gotta protect you here. Yeah. One of my close friends is uh, Congressman, uh, Dan Kildee from Michigan, uh, Dan, mm-hmm. you know, of the Flint area. Now yep. Dan was, was running, was, was winning very comfortably, uh, in his districts. And he was able to raise money, not necessarily for himself, but for his colleagues. Now, as a result of Michigan redistricting, he is in a fight. He is right. in either a Trump district or just right on the margin. I mean, right on the margin. Um, the good news for somebody like Kildee is uh, he understands and knew early on that this might be a tough district and he is doing everything he needs to do. So he's focusing on those three indispensable elements uh, of a competitive election, what Nancy Pelosi called the three M's, message, money, mobilization. So he's he's got his message, uh, which is about delivering infrastructure dollars for the people of his district. He's got the, he's raising money and making sure that he's making those investments in his own infrastructure. Uh, and he's building out his field uh, presence. He's building out his canvassers. If you went from 58% to 51%, uh, you know what needs to be done. The other thing I want to mention is there's this myth that, you know, a lot of Democrats, 30 or 31 Democratic retirements in this cycle, that many of them were actually scared off because they were redistricted. That's just not true. Um, there are very few Democrats who retired um, because they suddenly had Trump districts. I think there's like one or two, you know, who have Trump districts. All the others just decided, like many Republicans, it was time to go. Yeah, you know, the Kildee race is fascinating. That's my old stomping ground in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And by the numbers this year in that district, if Biden doesn't turn his numbers around, he, he's the kind of thing generically he'd lose. But he he has been an institution in that district for a long time. There are a lot of casework yeah. stories. And he has the benefit that longtime incumbents who play it right, he has his own media market up there. So, mm. you know, he's on TV all the time, Flint Saginaw. He, um, he's got deep roots there. He's a hard tree to pull out. If it's going to happen, this is the cycle, I think. Uh, yeah. But the countervailing forces he has in terms of what he's built up in that district over time are powerful. So it, that's going to be a fascinating test of a year like this. I, I want to have the first Kildee in Michigan, by the way, too. Right? It's uh, there's right. there's there's a there's a line of that. His uncle Dale uh, was in Congress, preceded him in Congress. Right, right. That name is a big deal in that area. And again, when you have your own media market. 
um, mm-hmm. you you can get deeper roots and awareness than somebody who might be just in one suburban district somewhere in a big market. The other question I had is, you know, in 2018, for a lot of reasons, punishing Trump, but a very effective message about they're going to take away your pre-existing conditions. Dems had a great congressional year. Then 20, as you said, Biden wins, but the Dems kind of get clobbered. And looking at it from the sidelines, it looked to me like the House lost a lot of message control. And there was a lot of volume to fund the police and stuff coming from the activist left. How does, in this high stakes year, how does the D-Trip and, and, and Pelosi and everybody working for the Dems to survive, how did they tame the caucus of people who are very good at making noise, the media loves to cover them, and they all come from districts where the box of hammers would win if it's a Democrat. So they're not really adroit at swing state politics, but they message like they think they will. You know, the key to winning the Detroit suburbs is uh, outlaw air travel with a Green New Deal, whatever it might be. How, how do you get them off Twitter for six months? Because the view in Republican world is, God, they're great for us. Well, the president, I believe, uh, very effectively reset that narrative uh, in a state of the union where he actually said words yeah. that were music to moderate ears. We're not defunding the police and then followed up with a budget that increased funding to police. He writes the script. And as I said earlier, and Democrats have to amplify and echo what's in the script. The more he does that, the better shape Democrats will be in. You know, the M- NBC did a poll recently, one of the biggest negatives to use against somebody was somebody in Congress who wanted to defund the police. And to your point, Congressman, I thought it was the line of the state of the union. Uh, the budget backs it up and it's a huge amount. It's, it's $30 billion in training and it's uh, probably trillions of dollars in political cover. Yeah, no, I agree. The Biden guys done the right thing. The question is, can they get the mute button? Because, you know, social media is a free radio station and they're not that wing of the party likes to keep the revolution going, even when it's a very bad idea. All right. So here's the pivot. Let's go north to the most interesting special election currently going on in the great state of Alaska, where legendary multi-decade Alaska Congressman Bowie Knife uh, Brandisher and all-around character and a huge appropriator. That guy probably shipped more uh, freight cars of money back home than just about anybody. The great Don Young uh, recently passed away. I think he was about 90, right, and still in Congress, late 80s. Anyway, he there forever. So there's an open seat in Alaska for the one congressional district they have, which is at large. So it's almost like a third Senate seat in some ways. Uh, 50 candidates are in and growing. I'm thinking of running. I can't find my snowshoes, but if I can, I'm, I'm heading north. But there's one notable candidate who has thrown her, her binoculars to see Russia from her porch into the ring, and that would be former governor and vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin. What do we think? You're giving me a little, a little PTSD because I served with Don Young, and, I, and I'm not kidding. Of all the members of Congress I served with, this guy was the most intimidating. I remember being on an elevator with him, and it was like I lost 10 pounds just because of the sweat coming off my body. Yeah, he, he would wave the Bowie knife around. I mean, he was like the lumberjack congressman. Yeah, the guy didn't get a bridge to nowhere by being nice. That's how, you, you know, he brought a knife to an appropriations committee and ended up with a lot of money. 
he invited me to his office uh, to get to know one another. And, you know, it was like a hunting lodge when I walked in. I represented like suburban Long Island where the only hunting we do is in the, the grocer's frozen freezer section. So it was weird. I had a friend who served and talked about dealing with Ted Stevens, another great appropriator, the senator, who was known for his gruff demeanor and Don Young. And it said like, I don't know what is in the water in Alaska, but boy, they elect pissed off people to the, to the House and Senate. Well, in this race, it will be interesting. I mean, obviously, Palin has not necessarily been on the Alaska political scene for a while, right? Now, that having been said, she's been very instrumental, and and lots of people have said this. I'm certainly not the first, but I don't think there's a Donald Trump without a Sarah Palin. And I think we saw that in 2008 and into 2009. I think she gave real voice and real rise to what ended up being the Tea Party throughout 2010, um, you know, she and Trump sort of endorse each other. They both are thinking about running for president in 2016. She ends up endorsing him for president. Um, I think the challenge for her in Alaska and getting back to running in her home state is the, the polling that was done about a year ago by the pollster up there who knows the state really well found her favorability. And again, she's running statewide, as Murphy said, it's an at-large district. Her favorability was 31% because a lot of people remember in 2009 when she quit the governor's mansion. And just quit kind of out of the blue. It wasn't right. like a managed thing. She just said, I don't want to be governor anymore. And it was over. Yeah. And I remember that day, I, it, it was, I think it was around the July 4th holiday. And I remember I was in the White House and I remember getting you know text alerts about it. I went, what in the world is going on? Because as you said, it was sort of lightning out of the blue. So I think this will be interesting. She's not the only big name. There's a Begich in this race, um, which, you know, is, is a, is a historical name in in Alaska politics. Um, the last time there was a special election was to replace, uh, uh, a a Begich who had, had died, uh, in a plane crash. Um, so it it is, uh, I think it's going to be interesting and, and I can't even begin to explain it because I, I need to write it all out. There's a completely weird way of doing this election now in Alaska. That's a big part of the equation. Right. There, there's a there's a top four that go on to the general election. There's ranked choice voting. Not to mention, this is a special election to fill a very small amount of this uh, time left in the seat. There's actually a concurrent election to replace the congressman. So Yeah, it couldn't be more complicated. It's almost like the... Alaska legislature said, hey, let's send a delegation over to France and try to find the most complicated multi-level election system we can. So what happens is there are over 50 candidates. They all run on one ballot regardless of party. Then the top four, not the top two, go on to a ranked choice voting choice. And what that really means is if you have wide support, a lot of people vote for you. A lot of people say, oh, they're my second choice. They're okay. You prevail. Palin is not that kind of Paul. She is, you know, a, a, a strong knot of support. So there, there's intensity, which means I'll bet she makes the top four. There are limits. The only other thing I'd say is, you know, politicians have half-lives, particularly at home where they're quick to punish. And Sarah Palin has gone from a political phenom to somebody you can get to open your shopping center if you have 2000 cash and a Greyhound ticket. So she's faded. And at home, where they tend to love you or hate you more because they know you and they bring you up, um, it'll be interesting to see. She will have money from, you know, small dollar donors. She has the Trump endorsement. But in this system, 
which is more about wide appeal than narrow, uh, there could be problems. Last thing I'd say, just to echo what Robert said, uh, Don Young was such a big deal. In these small states, don't forget, if you only have one congressman, it's like a senator. The stakes are high, and they're used to somebody who bring back the bacon. It's a serious job there. They, they value it. It's much bigger than kind of one of 30 members in a large delegation. I don't think that's good for her either. But, you know, crazy times demand crazy politics, so anything could happen. I think my favorite declared candidate, this is true, guys, uh, is a guy named Santa Claus. There's a <laughs> North Pole city councilor. How do you vote against Santa Claus? <laughs> I, uh, I can imagine the attack ad now. You know, who is this strange man with a white beard and no discernible job? He claims he can fly and magically make toys with elves. You know, there, there was a famous spot Chris Matola did one day at the NRCC, your counterpart on the Republican uh, side, the Republican Congressional Committee. They had an in-house studio and the candidates who couldn't really afford real consultants, the party would give them a couple, hoping somebody got lucky and won. So Chris was the producer that year in the 80s. And in, uh, I'm going to try to send our producers a soundtrack for this. One night after a couple of drinks and after making 200 ads, he, he they just lost it. In the middle of the night, they made an ad. Uh, he says he's a holy man from Jerusalem. And they basically was a, an attack ad against Jesus Christ. And um, it is, it's actually quite funny. And uh, it, it, at the end, of course, vote Pontius Pilate. You know, leadership will continue. And uh, so I think the Santa Claus candidacy deserves that parody treatment. That would be my advice. All right. Hold that thought. We're going to take a short break. And now a word from our sponsors. Murphy, you know, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I need is a great, great cup of coffee. And I know the coffee that we're going to tell you about today is something you gifted to your dad and he loves it. He's like me. He needs that great cup of coffee in the morning or maybe in the afternoon and evening. Oh, he is a coffee fanatic. He has been his whole life. And he loves the trade coffee he's selected on the website. You know, trade coffee, they have experts there who, what a cool job to put on your tax return. I taste coffee for a living. They literally taste thousands of coffees to keep 450 kinds live and ready to ship every single day. There's no perfect coffee, but there is a perfect coffee for you, the coffee drinker. And trade's human-powered algorithm will find it. That's why trade has a first match guarantee. Trade is so confident that they will match you right the first time you try that if they don't, they take your feedback and an actual coffee expert will work with you to select a brand new bag for free. Trade Coffee sends you freshly roasted beans from 60 of the country's best craft roasters, small businesses who pay farmers fair prices to sustainably source the greatest beans from around the world. Whether your friends call you a coffee snob or you just know it when coffee tastes really perfect. Trade's real coffee experts personally taste over 450 rows so they know exactly what to recommend just for you. And by the way, be a coffee snob. If you're going to drink coffee every day, put a little work on it to drink good coffee, not some sludge. It's worth it to go for the best. All you have to do, it's really cool technology. 
You just answer a couple of questions online and bingo, you will get your own personalized variety of coffees delivered fresh to you as often as you like. No gimmicks, just a good match. And right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash hacks. That's more than 40 cups of coffee, Murphy, for Free. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash hacks and let trade find you a coffee you'll love. No gimmicks. Trade delivers a bag of freshly roasted coffee as whole beans or ground, however you brew it at home, and they guarantee you'll love your first order, or as we said, they will replace it for free. That's why Trade is so successful and so popular. They have delivered over 5 million bags of fresh coffee with more than, get this, 750,000 positive reviews. You got to check it out. How do people do that, Gibbs? Go to drinktrade.com slash hacks. That's drinktrade.com slash hacks for $30 off. Congressman, we should get you involved in the the recurring fight that Murphy and I have, uh, and I'm going to enter into uh, into evidence. My my latest, uh, we, we have this debate about Donald Trump and his political power, and uh, you know, I, I I continue to think uh, he's he's quite strong. Um, I continue to think that he wants to run and he'll be the nominee, um, and you know. He's he's certainly got a lot on the line with these endorsements. It'll be interesting to see his impact on a place uh, like Alaska with Sarah Palin. But you know, Murphy, in your old stomping grounds, you know, first of all, Trump came to Michigan over the weekend, spoke for two hours, kind of Castro esque speech uh, length, uh, and uh, there's a retirement in the Michigan delegation this morning. Um, that might give some indication as to the strength of Donald Trump. Well, let me let me do a little salute because he's a friend of mine. I've known him a long time. Fred Upton represents Southwest Michigan, one of the most respected members across the aisle, uh, has announced he's not running for re-election. He got redistricted where he held on to a little over half of his own seat, but not, not St. Joe where, where he's really from and where he lives, and he didn't want to move. And he's been put in with another member from Holland, Michigan, a little north on the western part of the state, in a strongly lean Republican seat. It used to be a little more swing. Now the new one is a little more Republican. And a Republican primary would be tough for him, along with his colleague uh, Peter Meyer, also from West Michigan. They both voted to impeach Donald Trump in a moment of great courage, and Trump has come after both of them. So Fred, who will be a huge loss to the House, one of the best people, you can just see his former staff are all tweeting. It's, it's heartbreaking for many of us because he was one of the good guys. Um, he took a look at that primary and thought World War III might not be for him. I think he wanted to fight. I mean, I know he told me about it, uh, but it was a tough situation in the modern Republican Party. So, you know, so one, Fred, we miss you. This is a loss for the country. Uh, second, yes, Trump is powerful, but he's particularly powerful if you vote to impeach him in a Republican primary. That is a bridge too far, even for a lot of kind of tribally loyal Republicans who would like to move on beyond Trump. So so Fred Fred had a primary problem there. He would have got a lot of crossover votes, open primary. He was popular with independence. But uh, uh, I take your point, Gibbs. Trump is still a big factor in the primary, particularly if you're 
if the primary voters see you as somebody who just doesn't want to move beyond or occasionally oppose Trump, but you want to you want to impeach him and throw him out of office, even when that is exactly what was necessary and should have been done. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I look, I, I think that uh, that is all the evidence you need uh, that to, to prove that Trump continues to dominate the Republican Party. Eighty percent of Republicans still still are loyal to to Trump. What what fascinates me is, you know, Romney and Murkowski uh, recently announced that they're going to vote uh, for Jackson for uh, uh, to uh, put her on the Supreme Court. Um, and I, I wonder whether voters will forgive them for that but they just don't forgive them for any opposition uh, to Trump. I think he's that much of a factor that, you know, if, if, if it's about him, you just can't resist him as a Republican. But you can vote with Democrats on other things, including Supreme Court nominations. I'm, I'm interested to see how that plays out. Yeah, Utah is special. You know, Mitt really is Elliot Ness. The Romney family has a long history in the civil rights era with his dad and his mom. And people who don't know the Michigan history may not understand that. So I was not surprised at this. Um, but it was very brave, as, as you say, Steve, in the modern Republican Party. Romney does have a lot of political strength in Utah, which is, you know, the least Trump has the least grip on Utah that he does on every Republic, any Republican state. That said, he still has a bit of a grip. And the thing to watch this year, a sideways plug, is my friend Evan McMullen is running as an independent uh, conservative, rule of law conservative in Utah against Mike Lee. Uh, and the polls show that if the Democrats do, as many expect them to, not nominate anybody, it'll become a real race, kind of a hybrid reform Republican, rule of law Republican, and Democrats against Lee, who's the, the, the Trump choice. So uh, Utah is very special, but still very gutsy vote for Romney. But I applaud it. I think on the merits, Mitt was right. It's interesting because if you talk to folks, uh, I talked to somebody yesterday in Washington, um, the, the smarter money was not on Romney to do this vote. It was on Murkowski. Yeah. And I think a lot of us, I certainly had begun to think, oh, Murkowski, this is voted for um, Judge Jackson uh, a, a year and a half ago to become, uh, uh, to be promoted onto the federal, uh, above on the federal bench. Um, but to your point, Murphy, this ranked choice voting and the process that she's going to go through in Alaska right. in, in her reelection actually meant this was a good thing. The smarter money was that Romney wasn't necessarily going to get there and didn't vote for her previously. Uh, but, uh, you know, courageous to, to the point there. I will say just to echo one thing Murkowski said, um, you, you've got a process uh, for Supreme Court justices that is near. If we haven't already passed it, um, we're perilously close to sort of the breaking point on how this works. Um, it's really hard to imagine now how any president gets a Supreme Court nominee through unless they have um, the Senate majority. I, I just I, I think we're at a point where it's going to be virtually impossible for that to happen. Just a footnote, and then we'll let Steve wrap this up. You know, just historically speaking. This whole idea of a kabuki circus with the Senate deciding who's fit to be on the Supreme Court is a relatively new invention. You know, congressional or Senate ratification of presidential Supreme Court choices only a few decades ago was perfunctory. It was basically a rubber stamp. You're the president. You get to pick. If, if it's pretty boy Floyd, we may say something. But other than that, we're going to go with the president. I think we need a return to that because there's no longer any reasonable purpose. It's just become a proxy 
circus of insults and personal character assassination. It's been on a long downward trend from the Bork hearings forward. The Republicans, of course, have mastered it and become worse. And, you know, it it serves no purpose now. Well, I will just say uh, Joe Biden uh, will have a good week. Uh, You know, he was elected at 20 percent. Yeah. Uh, of, of voters in the middle of swing voters, they, they supported him because they thought he'd be able to manage on a bipartisan basis. This vote in the Senate, which should happen later this week, will give him a very good narrative. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's a it's a great victory for the White House, for Biden, for Democrats. It hasn't gotten as much attention because of Ukraine. It hasn't gotten as much attention because um, there really hasn't been as much drama in how the vote would come out. Um, you know, we've been wondering if 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 Susan Collins would be the only Republican or would there be others? So there hasn't been that sort of political tension. But uh, by week's end, uh, it'll be a big victory for Joe Biden. And he should take a lap. Let's take a short break and hear from our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. Because, Gibbs, I like to shop online. I'll bet you do, too. A lot. But you come to that thing where they want the secret coupon, and you feel like an idiot because you don't have the secret coupon. There's like a cool kid's party you're not invited to, so you wind up paying more. It drives me nuts. There's a solve now, Murphy. If you don't have a promo code thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your shopping cart. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites, Murphy. When you check out, the Honey button appears and all you have to do is click apply coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons. Yep. It can find for that site. If Honey finds a working coupon, your prices will drop. Yeah, you know what? I played around with this thing yesterday when we got the ad copy, and I saved a little money on an online site. The coupon actually works. They've got good tech. They find the coupons, and you save money so you don't feel left out. The other good news is this thing will work on everything. It's not just a desktop app. It works on your iPhone 2, iPad. All you got to do is for your, your Mac user, activate it on Safari on your phone, and bingo, you are hooked up, and you will start saving money. And guess what? All you have to do to get honey it's free, is go to joinhoney.com slash hacks. That's joinhoney, H-O-N-E-Y, dot com slash hacks. If you don't already have honey, you could be straight up missing out. That's how I talk like the cool kids, Murphy. Oh, I knew you were one of them. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this show. Again, I'm talking like the hip kids. Murphy would never recommend something he doesn't use. So get honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hacks. That's joinhoney.com slash hacks. Murphy, is it is it that time? It is the magic moment, Gibbs. Cue the band. It's listener mailbag. If you have a question for the Hacks on Tap, email us at hacksontap at gmail.com. Hacksontap at gmail.com. And I want to thank the nice couple I met at the San Ysidro Ranch this weekend who came up to me and said, we love the podcast, you bloviators. We even subscribe to the newsletter. So you too, try that. It's free twice a week by email, hacksontap.bulletin.com. And they reminded me that our merch store 
at hacksontap.com where the beer mugs, coffee cups, and Gibbs-designed activewear can all be found is mostly out of stock. Supply chain! We're suffering too, but we're working on that, so stand by and you can get your cool merch there. I'm going to start with a question for Steve from Matt. Do you see any Democrats either overtly or behind the scenes making moves that indicate they will challenge Biden and or Harris in 2024? When is the drop dead date for someone to mount a meaningful run for president due to the need to raise money, hire a staff, etc.? What do you think, Congressman? Well, my party right now uh, is in a, a state of suspended animation. Uh, nobody is going to challenge the president and the vice president right now overtly, and uh, they do it at their own peril covertly. There is no political incentive for President Biden to tip his hand. There is no political incentive for him to take any position other than I'm running for reelection. For as long as he has that position, number one, he freezes the field. He gets to decide who his successor may be if or, or have a great deal of influence on that. Should he decide not to run? I believe he's running. Uh, and uh, he remains uh, standing on the bully pulpit. That used to be a real disadvantage uh, to folks who wanted to challenge uh, a sitting president. You know, the running for president is an expensive proposition. In the old days, you had to, you know, build out your finance network. You had to uh, start doing events. You had to start talking to folks, uh, network your donors. But what is new and or pernicious, uh, in my view, is that under the current campaign finance laws, all you need are like two friends who can fund uh, a couple of super PACs for you. Uh, and so you can get a late start. You no longer need the time that it takes to build out a finance network. As long as you have a couple of people uh, who have the resources and the wherewithal to make the investments in a super PAC as, as soon as it's ready to launch. That may have been a very long-winded way of saying that nobody's going to make any kind of overt moves now. And to the extent that they're talking about it, it's done in a very calibrated and careful way. I just chime in, one, I agree. Two, the real window where this, uh, this cauldron will start boiling will be next spring after the midterms. That's where people will skulk around a little bit. And finally, that's all true about rich friends. Uh, the other thing is if you're famous and you have a brand and you're on social media for free, mm -hmm. you can short circuit the whole system like a certain orange menace did back in 2015. This is a question that comes from Jeff, who writes, on several occasions, you three not blaming Congressman Israel, he's talking about Axrod, have criticized the Biden ah. White House for fumbling statements, being tone deaf, or not taking enough advantage of successes. I'm old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter brought Lloyd Cutler in to be his quote-unquote wise man in the White House to fix things. Do you think Biden should do that, and who should he tap? Murphy, are you ready? Are you in? I'm ready. Well, Biden does have a classically trained Washington, D.C. wise man. The problem is it's Biden. And so I don't, this is an old Washington thing. Oh, we got to fix things. Bring in somebody the Beltway Press thinks is smart. So you, they stop writing columns at Georgetown cocktail parties about how bad everything is. I don't think that's the real answer for Biden. That said, I think his communications operation, and who knows, this might be partially driven by him, has been a problem. They, they haven't been good at punching through things and picking the right fights. I don't think they've used the bully pulpit particularly well. Easy to criticize. They've risen to the occasion on some things without a doubt. But I, 
I, I would look at a revamp there. I think Jen Psaki's done a good job as the tactical press secretary. She's very talented, but she's leaving. She's going to join, I, if I see what in the media, our broadcast home over at NBC. So uh, a little retooling there uh, to kind of modernize and get better at punching through would serve the president well on the political side. And finally, I don't know if you can afford them, but Gibbs is available. Now, here's a question for Robert. This is your audition for the Biden wise man job. John wants to know, news just came out that retiring Senator Roy Blunt will not vote for Judge Jackson on the Supreme Court, despite the fact that she's incredibly qualified. Why is this? If he's retiring, why not vote his conscience? Same question applies to Senator Toomey as well, for Senator Toomey retiring in Pennsylvania. Yeah. First of all, let me just say I, I'm I'm not running. I'm not a nominee. And if I'm elected, I will not serve. <laughs> John, it's a great question. And I actually, when we started this process around the Supreme Court, like you thought that a number of these retiring Republican senators might be partial to supporting particularly the historic nature of Judge Jackson's nomination. And so you've got and you've got people that aren't really bomb throwers, right? Blunt's part of the leadership. You've got Rob Portman in Ohio, uh, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, Richard Burr in North Carolina. Um, again, not real bomb throwers as as you think in in I didn't think Senator Shelby in my home state of Alabama was in danger of voting this way. I think what has prevented a lot of those members from running is in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Missouri, uh, and in North Carolina, you have very heated Republican primary battles. And I don't think that any of these uh, retiring senators wanted to create issues in that, particularly if they have candidates that they have voiced support for. Again, I, I could have put a, like a Rob Portman as somebody who you could see doing it. He's made an endorsement in the Ohio Senate race. Uh, and so therefore, I think he's unlikely to step out of line and put a lot of pressure on the person uh, that he nominated to either be for or against his point of view on that. I'll just chime in that I don't, I think you're right. They don't want primary ruckus. The new operating rule of, in many ways, both parties, but particularly the GOP, is that you have to treat your base voters like swing voters. I think it's a huge tactical mistake. They're base voters for a reason. Uh, disappointing them a little is how you get a lot of other voters. But that that's what they believe to be true, and they're acting accordingly. Yeah, and particularly on a vote that is, as we talked about, seems a little easier yeah, uh, it's not it's not a sort of hit to the main Trump engine. It's uh, it, it's something again. It's also historical in nature. Congressman, we as always enjoy your thoughts, your wisdom. Thanks for sharing some uh, metaphorical French fries with us as you describe your lunches with the with the DCCC. We will have you back again, undoubtedly, before Election Day. We're going to get a robe made up like Saturday Night Live for the Five Timers Club here. So you're one of our favorite guests. You bring such expertise and insight. One more Thanks. plug for Theodore's Books. Is there a website or something? People can check it out, get directions. Theodore'sBooks.com. And uh, the store is named after my favorite all-time Republican president who lived and worked in Oyster Bay, Long Island. So come visit. We would. We, here's what we need to do. We need to do hacks on tap live from theaters oh we love it bully bully sign me up 
That would be great. We I, I should do a plug, too, for the Midtown Reader in Tallahassee, Sally Bradshaw's joint. Another great ex-politico with a fantastic bookstore. Yes. Uh, and I'm coming around uh, New York in a few months to lead a lonely protest against the taking down of the Teddy Roosevelt statue outside the Museum of Natural History. So his his ghost will uh, move me to come out and visit that bookstore. I'm looking forward I to it. I will be there with you, man. I'll be there right with you. I know. Congressman uh, suggested you read The Splendid and the Vile, which is brilliant. I'm going to give you another book recommendation that's sitting right here on on my table. Uh, Greg Bluestein's new book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly of Republican Power. If you're wondering what the most interesting political state in 2022 is, the answer is Georgia. Read about what happened in 2020 and order it off of the uh, website for Theodore's book. Theodore'sBooks.com. There you go. We have it. Theater's books. They got it. They can ship it to you. Okay. Thank you all. Congressman, great to have you. Gibbsy, great to talk to you. And we will be back soon.